Turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. The highest point geographically in the contiguous United States is Mount McKinley. If I'm not mistaken, 14,505 feet above sea level. That's a long way up, isn't it? You might be surprised, many of you would not be, but I was actually when I did a little research. It's about 100 miles as the crow flies to the lowest place in the United States, Death Valley. 282.2 feet below sea level. It has been commented by more than one person that the highest places are often close to the lowest places geographically. The same could be say, said about spiritual highs and spiritual lows. Last week when we left the great prophet Elijah, he was running the 25-mile distance between his place in Zarephath and near Mount Carmel all the way to Jezreel. That's a long run, isn't it, for anybody? And he was running it in the power of the Lord. That's what we saw last week. God filled him with the power to do that. With that having been said, we're going to see where he comes from this Great victory. God gave Israel a great victory and gave Elijah, the prophet of Israel, a great victory when he faced off with the 450 prophets of Baal. He challenged them to call their God, Baal, who was, by the way, the God of the atmosphere, including the sun, to send down fire and consume the offering which they had lain on their altar there on Mount Carmel, which was, by the way, as we saw last week, the place where he was worshipped in ritual activity. For a half day, the prophets of Baal carried on, cut themselves, did everything they knew imaginable to try to get their God to answer their prayer, to do what they wanted Him to do to prove that He was the one true God with no answer from that God. Then, the great prophet Elijah asked his God, the God who answers by fire, by the way, to consume a similar offering on an altar which had been reestablished on that particular Mount Carmel, And God did just that. And then we know the rest of the story. The 450 agents of Baal were slaughtered that day, putting an end to Baal worship for that time being at least. But now we see something different unfolding. We see this man, Elijah, having been preceded by Ahab, the king of Israel. They arrived there in Jezreel, the capital. Ahab is talking to his wife, reporting to her what had happened earlier that day on Mount Carmel. She was very interested because she was the one who primarily introduced Baal worship into Israel. She was a religious woman, to say the least. She served false gods. She was an idolater. She was a person who was given to promiscuity and the promotion of sexual misconduct. She was one who was eager to hear whether her 
priests had defeated the priest or the prophet of God. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. I can imagine Ahab comes in. He's been on a long trip. It's been an exhausting day physically, but for him also an emotionally exhausting day as he's witnessed the demise of the gods of his country. And he comes into the presence of his wife and he tells her what has happened. We can only expect her to have been irate and she was very angry when she heard about it. So angry that she sent a messenger, verse 2 says, to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. There would be some question in my mind is she, if she actually was aiming to kill him. After all, we know from what we learned last week in chapter 18 that prophet Elijah had said to the spectators, we don't know how many there were, Arguably, there could have been hundreds, maybe even thousands, because the word had been broadcast by Ahab all over Israel to come to witness this confrontation between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Baal, the false god of the Canaanites. Well, these people had been challenged by Elijah with these simple words. If Baal is God, follow him. If the Lord is God, follow Him. Decide who you're going to follow. That's what he was saying. And then what happened after God did come and consume the altar sacrifice? What happened? The Bible says all those people came and they fell face down on the ground and they began to cry out, The Lord is God. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. Those people had acknowledged that it's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jehovah God, who was the one who was indeed the true God. And what we see here is that this woman was concerned, probably. There's nothing in the text that indicates it, but I'm using my sanctified imagination it would be better just to scare the daylights out of Elijah if she could by threatening him, by intimidating him. And she says, and by the way, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be just like those 450 prophets of Baal whom you killed. And what did he do? Well, like every good man, he ran. So let's look at verse 3. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, if we thought a 25-mile run was a long run from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, it was 75 miles to Beersheba. He did not go back to where he had lived for the past two or so years in Sidon, at Zarephath, he had a place to stay there, remember, with the widow in the upper room. Nor did he go to his home, which would have been to the east, to Gilead, where he undoubtedly would have received a welcome. 
by family members, if not the citizenry of that area. But he went south. He went into the wilderness, as it were. And he did it because he was afraid. He was afraid of Jezebel. He was afraid of her because he took his eyes off of the Lord. It's hard to keep your eyes on the Lord at all times. We're easily distracted. Even if you and I are serious followers of Christ, it is easy to be sidetracked by our circumstances. Now, let me note this as well. We are people who, when we have victories, when God uses us to accomplish His purpose, that is a time when we are most susceptible, I believe, to getting our eyes off of the Lord. We put our eyes on other people, or we put our eyes upon ourselves, and instead of getting our direction from the Lord Jesus Christ, we get it from other people or from our own selfishness. And we resort to our independent living or depending on others' viewpoints of us rather than upon the Lord and keeping our concentration on the Lord. I believe that happened to this man and it happens to us. And it causes us to be despondent. As we read earlier, I hope you noticed as we read from Psalm 42, twice in that psalm, and most scholars believe 43 at one point was part of that psalm, there are three times in those two psalms where the same words are basically mentioned by the psalmist to himself. He speaks to his soul. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God is what the psalmist wrote. Hope in God. For again, I shall praise Him because He has helped me by His presence. The word translated downcast literally in the original language means sunk down. I'm going to take the liberty to use the word depressed there because when something is sunk down, we call it to be in a depression. If the earth sinks down, we say there's a depression in the earth. If someone takes some some sort of lick on their body, sometimes there's a depression left on the flesh. So, when the Scripture says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? I'm going to say it means, Why are you depressed, O my soul? So keep that in mind. After a great victory, oftentimes the outcome is that we find ourselves in a place of despondency. Once a battle is won, it's, as I've said, a very vulnerable time. When God gives a, va- a great battle, victory, there usually is one that comes after it. At different intervals in my walk over the years of seeking to follow the Lord, being in some sort of organized ministry for the last 50 years, there have been many victories that I've been able to witness, and they've all been uplifting. But at some point along the way, I learned that there's going to be more later. We are in a struggle, a titanic struggle, aren't we? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, and the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil evil in the 
heavenly realms. And we know who the director of that is. Who is the Lord of that realm? It's none other than the devil himself. I'm proposing today that Jezebel, although the Bible doesn't say it per se, she was possessed of the devil. She was satanic. And she does exactly what the devil does. He intimidates us. This is what Peter writes in 1 Peter 5. Our adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Have you ever, out of the blue, felt like you were being oppressed in a way? Where you had great hope and faith in the Lord. Maybe God was using you and then you're intimidated. Maybe it's in the form of someone who really bullies you, humanly speaking. But maybe it's sort of mysterious the way that happens. But what we do know is it causes us to get our focus off of the Lord and on to the circumstances or to a person who is creating havoc in our lives like Jezebel was in the case of the prophet Elijah. His fear came from the wrong focus. His fear also came from what she had said would happen to me. You're going to die, is what she said to him. And he ran for his life. He was fearful of his future. This is rather amazing considering what he did just earlier that day in fighting off all these priests, these prophets of Baal. We oftentimes are intimidated by the future. We fear what lies ahead. We fear death. Is there any room for us who know Jesus to fear death if we stop and really consider who we are in Christ? What does the Bible say about us in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let me appeal to his answer to the question. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never throw away. Never. He uses the possible, most possibly strong negative language to assert that. He will never discard us, ever. And then in another place he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. No one shall be able to snatch them out of my hand. I and the Father are one. The Father puts His hand around my hand and protects us. Praise God for that. That's who we are. What can separate us from the love of God, the Bible says in the book of Romans 8, Can life or death or angels or principalities or things to come, things present, and this long list of things which Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 8 that people think could separate them from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, but nothing can. Death cannot. Do you know the Bible says this about death? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Bible says the whole world belongs to us. And it goes on to say, talking about believers, that if that's you and I, and he's, Paul writes this, he says, death belongs to us. The Lord conquered death by His own death on the cross, paying for the price of our sins, giving that forgiveness to us by taking our place, and then being raised to dead, from the dead to new life. So, we don't need to fear dying. 
But some of us fear the future. Are you fearing the future today? You're not afraid of dying. You're just afraid that you won't be able to live tomorrow because you're facing so many troubles in your life. Well, those troubles have not entered our lives without the express consent of God the Father, who is a sovereign God. He allows those things to enter our lives. And therefore, we can take comfort in the fact that He loves us and He causes all things and included in that all things would be things that we would consider awful things. He is a sovereign God. So we need not worry about the future. We aren't even there yet. We need to deal with the day, don't we? That's what Jesus says. Do not be anxious for tomorrow, for every day has enough trouble of its own. Let's live today in dependence upon the Lord and watch Him help us. A third thing, I think, that contributed to the fear that embraced and controlled Elijah at this moment would have been what I call the fear of failure. If we read just a little further in verse 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. My eyes, as I read this again before this service, fixed on that three-word sentence, it is enough. What do you think he's saying? I've had all I can take, Lord. Have you had all you can take? I'm sure there's more than one person in this room who finds himself or herself in that situation. I've had all I can take. It's enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm not better than my father's. This is quite a contrast to the man whom we saw by this time a few days earlier on Mount Carmel, isn't it? Quite a different figure. Same man. And remember what James says about this man, Elijah. He said, he was a man with like passions to yours. He's a man just like we are human beings. He was a man who was filled with the Spirit of God when he carried out the work of God on Mount Carmel, when he prayed that God would bring the rain. He was a man who was following the Lord to the T, and God was filling him and using him in an incredible way. But what we need to understand is that any of us who have that kind of connection to the Lord, we can have it disconnected when we take matters into our own hands. He was afraid of failing. Here, what he says at the very end of verse 4, take my life. Is this the first time? Let me interrupt myself here. Is this the first time that he had prayed, at least record of it being printed in the Bible that he had prayed. Well, we've seen him pray three times already. Last week we saw that he prayed over a boy who had died in the home of the woman who hosted him in Zarephath. And she cried out to him and he prayed over this boy and he was raised from the dead. God answered that prayer. That was a miracle, wasn't it? 
And then when he asked the Lord to bring down fire to consume the altar there that had been made and the offering which was on it presented to the Lord, the God consumed, God's consumed that with fire. And then, of course, when it came to the rain, he prayed. And God, after three and a half years of drought, God answered the prayer. But he doesn't answer this prayer, does he? He says, take my life. Have you ever been that low in your life where you've asked the Lord, would you just take my life? Some of us perhaps have even thought about taking our lives. That's not God's will for your life. And if you're still here, He's got you here for a purpose. So look for what that purpose is. We know what the general purpose is to bring glory to Him. He's not finished with you yet if you're still here. No matter what condition your body or soul might be in, He is not finished with you yet. And He wasn't finished with Elijah, obviously, even though he thought of himself as being done. Uh, I'm sure he did. He said, I'm finished, Lord. I'm finished. I have amounted to nothing, basically, is what he was saying. I haven't done a thing And you know what God would have said to that? You're exactly right, Elijah. I, however, have chosen to do something significant through you. That's what we need to keep in mind. That it's God's Spirit in us that gives us the power to be used by God. Remember, we are people just like Elijah in our nature. Just like the Spirit of God lived and moved through Elijah, if we know Jesus Christ, that same Spirit indwells us. And He can move and desires to do that through our lives as we yield ourselves to Him. So this man was a man who feared failure. That perhaps grew out of the fact that his fathers had expectations of him, his father and his grandfather, maybe even a great-grandfather. They had expectations of Elijah, which they communicated that were not the expectations of God. And he got his mind not only on Jezebel, but as one of those kinds of thought leads to the similar thought, he got his mind on the expectations of his dad or his grandfather or both of them. Possibly that's the case because he says, I'm not better than my fathers. He had striven to be better than his fathers. Look, we're not in a performance mode if following if we're following the Lord. The Lord is one who loves us and cares for us. I'd like to read an excerpt from a man by the name of F.B. Meyer. And he writes about Elijah. Listen to what he says. It is not difficult to believe that God loves us when, like Elijah at Cherith and on Carmel, we do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. But it is not so easy when, like Elijah in the desert, we lie stranded. Yet we must learn to know and believe the constancy of the love of God. We may not feel it. We may deem it shut up and gone forever. But nevertheless, it has not altered. Staunch as the affection of a friend, True as the love of a mother, the love of God abides unchangeable as God Himself is unchangeable. Our God loves us. He loved this man. And notice what the Lord did for him. I would have thought 
since he had turned tail and ran, that God was going to let him have it. He let him have it, but in a way unexpected. Look at verse 5. Elijah lay down, slept under a juniper tree, and it's exaggerating to say this was a tree. It was a broom piece of bush, really. We know that this species of tree can never grow more than 10 feet tall. The limbs are about that big around at best, and the leaves are so small you can barely see them, and they give very little shade. But that's the only thing he had, and he was accepting that. He lay down, slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise and eat. He fed him. He was worn out. And understandably so. Because of the exhaustion that would be part of being poured out in service to the Lord. Not to mention the physical exhaustion. The spiritual exhaustion would have exceeded the impact of the physical exhaustion. And he was worn out. And he was hungry. And the angel was sent. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the Bible talks about how angels are ministering spirits sent to the servants of God. Those who are saved by grace to minister to us. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. Inherent in the statement that is made by the angel of the Lord, who, by the way, I believe, was Jesus before he came in the flesh. When you look at the usage of the phrase and the idea of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's rather clear that it's a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And we see here, Jesus is at work feeding him and saying to him, Arise, eat, the journey's too great for you. I'm not through with you. He says there's more to the journey. It's not over. When you and I fail, and we do, when we are not walking as we know we ought to with the Lord, and we feel it's too late for us to resume the journey, if we understand who God is, He is a holy God. He is a loving God, however. And His love compels Him to confront us in our disobedience, our lack of faith, to call us to repentance, to repent and say, Lord, please, could you give me another start? How many starts have you had in your life? I haven't bothered to count them, but they, I'm sure they number in the thousands. I have at times said, I'm done, Lord. It's enough. But by His grace, He's encouraged me. He's encouraged me by His Spirit, through His Word, but He's encouraged me through people in the body of Christ. In this church, I have been encouraged by people. Never underestimate the power of encouragement to a brother or sister in Christ. Even the people that you think might have it all together. Look, there's not a person on earth who has it all together in Christ. We all have Christ in fullness, is what the Bible says. He lives in us. He's full of grace and truth, and of His fullness we have all received 
is what the Bible says, if we know Jesus. But what we also need to understand, he's ready to give us multiple second chances. Isn't it great to have a God like that? Look at verse 8. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. It was about a 350-mile journey, so geographers tell us. That's a long trip by foot, but he was making good time if you do the math. And what we need to consider now is how he was cured. Because in his cure... There is hope for us. This man had false hopes. This man was frustrated with the people. And we see the frustration coming forward here in verses 9 and 10. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. Some suggest this was a cave which Moses himself lodged in, in that area around Mount Sinai, which is another word for the Mount Horeb, same place, different name. The word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, God had not sent him here, but somehow he made his way there. He knew about Moses. He knew about the encounter that God and Moses had, how God had revealed himself to Moses and had given him the law and had given him the assignment to be the great lawgiver of Israel. And we know Elijah shows up again, doesn't he? Where does he show up in the New Testament? He was in the Mount of Transfiguration. And he was there with Moses, wasn't he? Moses, the great lawgiver. Elijah, the great prophet. And here we see the Lord saying, why are you here? He wanted to remind Elijah, and I happen to believe, this is just conjecture on my part, that Elijah went there because he associated the place with God's visiting and revealing himself to Moses. We read about that a little later, earlier rather today. Look at verse 10. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine idols, and killed thy prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He sounds like Eeyore, doesn't he? He really does. He's so... But he's being honest. The Lord knew all this. He didn't have to tell the Lord this. He knew that God was omniscient. But he was just saying what he felt to the Lord. Here's a good rule of thumb for you. When you're down, tell the Lord about what you're feeling. The Psalms are filled with David's Psalms. And how frequently do we hear him just sharing his heart. He's, he's just almost in a tirade telling God about all the trouble in his life. He comes short of saying, why aren't you interested? Many times. But he always ends up at the right place, doesn't he? David does. What does he always end up doing? Focusing on the Lord. Praising the Lord. Tell the Lord about your heartache. Tell Him your struggle. Tell Him if you feel like a nobody because you've blown it, tell him. And remember that failure can very well be the back door to success. A man named Fred Smith, who was a great executive in industry, a believer in Jesus, said this, Anything is possible with God, even failure. 
God lets us fail, as I've said, and he does it to humble us, to get us in a position where we can be used even more after having been used to accomplish such a great feat as was accomplished by God through Elijah on Mount Carmel. He was frustrated with the people, wasn't he? Hey, these people are no good, he says. And he thought, we know, wrongly, that he was the only one who had not bowed his knee to worship Baal. But what do we read later in the passage? We read it. 7,000 people had not bowed their knee nor had kissed an idol of Baal. So there were 7,000. We don't know what the population of that region was, but 7,000 would be a considerable number of people. And they were not all people who had just blown God off. Look at verse 12. And after the earthquake, excuse me, 11. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. Some of your translations might say a still, small voice. The language of the Old Testament would suggest it was a crushed voice. That would signify very, very faint voice. We are impressed, as most people would be, in a demonstration of God's power like a mighty wind. When God spoke to Job in straightening his, straightening his thinking out, He spoke to him in a whirlwind. When God spoke to Moses, He came to him in fire. There was another occasion in Moses' life where there was a great earthquake, but it was not in the spectacular. And please understand this. God is in the spectacular sometimes, but He is more apt to be found in what we would call the mundane things, the little things, like He spoke in this still, small voice. Can we hear the voice of the Lord today? Well, I would say yes. We can. He speaks to us in the chamber of our hearts. He speaks to us when we open the Word of God and we read it for fellowship, for encouragement, for instruction. And God is the same today as He was then. Verse 13, And it came about when Elijah heard it and he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He wants Elijah to tell him why he's here. And he repeats himself. He says the same thing he said in verse 10. So we don't need to read that. And then God responds in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel, king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And that will require replacement, by the way. The current king in Israel, we know Ahab. The current king of Aram, or Syria, was a man named Ben-Hadad, which would mean the son of Hadad. So they were going to be done away with. New kings would be appointed. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mechalah, you shall announce as a prophet in your place. He was going to be replaced too, but the time had not yet come. God was not finished with him, there was more that God wanted him to do. Precisely, he wanted him to train this 
younger man, Elisha, to take his place. Verse 17, it shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that I have not, have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shephat. Let's summarize what this passage of Scripture teaches us. What is God's Word for us today? If we are despondent, some of you are. Hopefully most of you aren't. But you need to keep this in mind. If I were you, I would be jotting some things down if you have a pencil handy. It's very clear. You could probably guess what I'm going to say. The first thing I'm going to say is not so obvious, but it's an overarching principle. Meditate on God's Word and apply it appropriately to the situation of depression. Meditate. You have to read God's Word in order to meditate on it. It would be wise to memorize part of God's Word if you're going to be an effective meditator. And what will happen is you will find verses that encourage you in the area of fear. Is there anything in the Bible that talks about fear as it relates to us who follow the Lord? Of course, in the book of Second Timothy 1.7, we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control, a sound mind. Some of the translations say we need to believe what the Bible says about our relationship and who we are. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. This is Isaiah 41.10. Surely I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous or victorious right hand. Remember where we are if we know Jesus. Where are we? We're in His hand. And He's won the victory. And His victory has been attributable to us. It's been given to us. Thank God for that kind of relationship with the Lord God and the way He cares for us. So, meditate on Scripture. Do what the psalmist in Psalm 42 and again in 43 told his soul. Hope in God. Put your hope in the Lord. Follow the Lord. Trust Him. When we hope in God, we are waiting on God. That's another very important point. Wait on the Lord. Wait on Him. Know that He will fulfill His promise in His way and His time. Meditate on God's Word. Wait on God. Then on the physical side, don't overdo your body. Rest. Eat properly. We are to do this if we're going to be good stewards of what has become the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in our bodies. We're not to worship our bodies. There's way too much of that in our culture. But we are to eat properly and rest properly. It's not a sin to rest. God doesn't want us to be lazy, but there's a big difference between being lazy and resting. I remember what Jesus says in Mark 6:31 after his apostles had been sent out 
on a mission. They were elated when they came back. God had used them. They had had a mountaintop experience. And Jesus knew what could happen if they didn't rest. And he said, I want you to come apart and rest a while. I like what Vance Havner, the great preacher from North Carolina, wrote about this. He said, in effect, what Jesus was saying, if you don't come apart, you're going to come apart. Right? We will. We'll just have a meltdown. And we'll be no good to anyone, especially to the Lord. So take rest. Eat right. We also need to tell the Lord what's on our heart. I've already dealt with that. Just tell Him what you're thinking. And get somebody else you can share that with. Another human being. Someone you can trust. Someone whom you know won't talk about it to anybody else. Someone who will pray for you. And we all need each other, don't we? The Bible says, bear one another's burdens. And the best way I know to bear another person's burden is to pray for him or her and then to give a word of encouragement, especially from the Bible. Because it's God's Word. It's living and sharper than the active and sharper than the two-edged sword. We're to do that as well. These are very important things that God has given to us which allow us to overcome. And certainly we are to overcome as we trust in the Lord. Think about this and think of ways that are derived from this story that you have thought about as we've worked our way through this. I'd like to finish by asking you to turn to 1 Kings 20. We're not going to read much of this, just two verses. And I'll give you the background. Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, or Syria, decided he was going to get a coalition of 32 kings who were in allegiance with him. Really, he was more powerful than their little kingdoms, so they glommed on to him. And he said, let's go show Israel who's king, who's boss in this area. And they went to do that. And they lost a battle against an inferior foe in Israel. The odds were like 10 to 1 at least in terms of numbers. And they won a victory. Look at verse 23. After this battle, the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, got his counselors together and he wanted to get some perspective on why they lost to this little pipsqueak country, Israel. Look what verse 23 says. Now the servants of the king of Aram said to him, Their gods are gods of the mountains. Therefore, they were stronger than we. What's this saying? Pagan gods were territorial. Once you passed the border of the country over which these pagan gods ruled, then you were beyond their protection. We know the difference in those gods and our gods. There are many. But here's a big difference. Our God is everywhere, isn't He? There's nowhere in the universe you and I can go that He's not there. So He's there. Praise the Lord, we have Him with us, and He is, among other things, our protector, our deliverer. But they thought, because they fought Israel in the mountains, that the Israeli God was the God of the mountains. Therefore, they were stronger than we, but rather let us fight against them in the plain and surely... We shall be stronger than they. Their God was the God of the plains or the valleys. 
whereas the Israeli God they thought was the God of the mountains. Now look at verse 28. Before another war was waged, the man of God, unnamed, comes to Ahab and says to him, Because the Arameans have said, The Lord is a God of the mountains, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Guess who won the battle? Yeah, you got it. The battle was won by Israel a second time. Because who fought it, actually? The battle belongs to the Lord, right? For us who know Him, the battle belongs to the Lord. And our God is just as much in the valleys of our lives as He is on the mountaintop and everywhere in between. We don't feel Him when we're in a valley emotionally. That's beside the point. We have to deny giving in to our feelings, turn our attention to what does God say in His Word about who He is and what His role is in our lives in every situation in which we might find ourselves. And we trust Him. We trust that He's a sovereign God. And we trust Him to do what He is best at doing, winning our battles. Praise the Lord for God who comes to us in our extreme difficulty, distress, depression, despondency, whatever name you want to give to it. And He's with us and He empowers us to be victorious in each and every situation. Let's pray. Father, we do ask now that You would help us to absorb the truth of this story around the great man Elijah. And now as we turn our attention to the observance of the Lord's table, we thank you for what it represents. We thank you that you tell us in your word that every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming your death, Jesus, until you come again. And that we are to continue to observe this great ordinance that you have established for your church until you come again, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you will give us what we need for every situation in our lives as we trust in you, not the least of which is when we have sinned against you by not trusting you, by disobeying you. As we come to this moment, Lord, show us in our hearts anything that is lingering that is not of you and it is of us. Help us to confess our sin and believe what you say that if we do, you forgive us our sin. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord. Amen.